If he's not dead this time, I give up. All right, everyone. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Screenplay Archaeology Podcast. I am your host, Kira Head, and tonight I'll be discussing a script that is an adaptation of the older British 60s TV show called The Prisoner, starring Patrick McGowan. And the premise of the, of the script is very similar to that of the original series. It's executed somewhat differently. The basic synopsis of the script, which was written by David Webb Peoples and Janet Peoples sometime around 2006, 2007, and it, it, it was in development mostly around 2006 through to 2009, this version of The Prisoner. So, and the basic setup of it is the same as the series, is that you have this unnamed intelligence agent who in this script is referred to as John Doe. He resigns from his position for reasons which are never clearly stated. And he if he finds himself kidnapped and imprisoned in this place called the village, where the people in charge, especially Number Two, who is the face of the of the powers that be, but isn't necessarily the person who's running everything. Desi- everybody's designated by numbers, and Doe gets designated Number Six. Basically, they want to know why John Doe quit his position with this intelligence group. Here, he's an American agent. On the original, he was British, obviously, but he won't say just as a matter of principle. And so they go through these extended mind games trying to get him to say why he did it and he still refuses and eventually you know it ends up sort of coming to a head and there's all these different things going on so there's all this there's a lot of weirdness a lot of mind fuckery and there's this weird device called a rover which is a big white ball basically that is is like the final resort for the security of the village to sort of keep people in and it like rolls over you and absorbs you and can do some other things that you'll see in the script which is a bit of an expansion on the premise but before I go into any more details, um, I want to get my usual plugs out of the way. Um, remember to check the show out on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter. And Blogger, of course. You know We're on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, so if you feel so inclined, leave us an iTunes review, leave us a rating, and if you leave a review, I will read it on the show. I checked before I started recording to see if there was a new review up on iTunes, but there wasn't. So yeah, remember, even if you don't like the show, if you hate it and have nothing but negative things to say about it, I will read it out on the show, barring a few things within reason. Like if you get racist or something i don't know why you would but you know there's there's a certain things i'm not going to read out on the air just for the sake of taste within reason i will read out any review that's left on the show so uh so remember to check those out if you have any questions or comments there is an official email which is going to be down below which is screenplayarchaeology at outlook.com if you want a similar show with a similar um, subject matter with unproduced scripts, check out the Shelved podcast. I'm going to link them down below. Um, that guy's been doing some uh, some interview episodes lately, but he says he's working on a new script episode, so be on the lookout for that. And to uh, get right into the meat of this episode, I should say, well, I'll go over the background quickly because I don't have a whole lot to say here because it's been a while since I've watched the Prisoner either version of it. But the original series, I I owned it on DVD. I do quite enjoy it. I I like the whole setup of it where it's this surreal, atypical sort of spy story and this whole setting of the village, which is very unique. You've got a very strong lead in Patrick McGowan, who is just great in everything he ever did. Like even like smaller, kind of like not showy roles like he got in, in say, uh, Scanners, 
was very good in that. And of course, you know, one of his later, more notable roles was in Braveheart, where he played Longshank, and he's fucking amazing in that, regardless of historical accuracy. So yeah, he, so he's good, and just yeah, just just the whole weirdness of the situation where nothing is really as it seems. Like there's this whole concept of like some some of the prisoners are actually guards, and you never know which is which, and even they probably don't know which is which. And just the weirdness, like the links they'll go to. Like there was an episode where they were like looking into uh, Number Six's memories to see you know what the reason was for resigning and they're trying to figure it out like there's like these three different it's like they're running through like alternate scenarios like they're trying to recreate and of course he's fighting back in a certain way that was an interesting one that was a b and c and there was and there's like some some episodes which are pushing the plot forward some of which are uh commenting on certain things like there's one called the general which was about reliance on technology and computers and there's one called free for all which isn't one of my favorites because i thought the premise was more interesting than the execution where it was commenting on democracy and some of the failures of democracy and also you had some crazier episodes like the one where they like create a double of number six and try to convince him that he's not the real number six he's actually the double that was a cool one and then there were ones where it would seem like he would escape from from the from the village but then he didn't and the way it would twist that around was pretty cool. If I had any issue with the series, it's that towards the end, and I know episode order is like, it's actually like no one knows what the actual like true episode order is supposed to be. I'm going to go by the DVD order that I have is that there were a couple of episodes towards the end of the DVD order where I was just kind of going like, okay, you're kind of running out of ideas here. Like there was this one where his he he actually does escape, but his mind got swapped with some other guy who's not nearly as interesting of a presence as Patrick McGowan and it turned into this really sappy kind of love story which i wasn't really a big fan of there was one i think called the girl who was death which was just really goofy and had like kind of a dumb m night Shyamalan twist at the end and there was one which it has an intriguing idea to it but i just don't think the execution is there and that's living in harmony where it turns into like a satire of like the tv westerns of the day but i don't really feel like because it, it, it's because it's like the prisoner only as a western i don't feel like the the parallels they draw between Western tropes and the village and this town that the cowboy version of number six is in, I don't really think they quite worked or made as much sense as they could have. And so it was just kind of weird, a weird episode where you're watching Patrick McGowan walk around in cowboy clothes. And it's like, okay, I get what you're doing here, but it's not as good as it could be. But the last two episodes I thought were really, really great. And the ending is legendarily insane and i love it just for how nuts it is like the best use of beatles music in almost any form of pop culture i'll just say that much uh, the use of all you need is love and the ending is just so out there and bizarre like you kind of have to give it credit for deciding to end like that especially in the days before lost or anything <laughs> like this is way back like, that was way ahead of its time and doing just the weird unexplained stuff and and just leaving it hanging like that. It, it was a really cool way to end the series. And even if it didn't make a whole lot of sense necessarily, it was just ballsy enough that I gotta give it credit for that. And so, of course, there was talk of a sequel or a remake for years and years and years. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second when I build up to the script. But it eventually came to be in the form of a six-episode miniseries on, on AMC, which I, I remember watching that when it aired, and I have not seen it since. So that is nearly 10 years ago now. Very, very close to 10 years ago now, because it was late 2009 when that ran. And I remember... 
mostly enjoying it as I watched it. It's not really The Prisoner, but it's it's an all right science fiction series. Jim Caviezel is very good. Ian McKellen steals the show as that version of number two. And there was some interesting, you know, science fiction ideas getting played around with in that and some good mind fucking. But I did feel like even on its own terms, it kind of stumbled a bit in places like there would be entire plot points was just they make a huge deal out of the fact that the people who aren't conforming to what's going on in the village are getting taken down to these tunnels and something is being done to them. And then Six goes down there to get this woman out. And then there's this montage of Beach Boys music. And then Rover shows up, which is explained in a completely different way in that version. He's not a security device. He's something else. But I I won't give it away for anyone who wants to watch that. And then it just, there's a big flash of light and then that whole thing about tunnels under the village never comes up again. And then there's this whole thing about shining towers you can sometimes see in the distance because this time the village is in the desert instead of next to the ocean. And like, oh, that's really important in like the first two episodes and then never brought up again from what I can remember. And then there was an interesting ending, like the ending twist was kind of neat and made a certain amount of sense, but it did kind of feel like they went maybe went a little too nuts with it in some respects. And so it wasn't a terrible series, but it wasn't really The Prisoner, and it maybe could it maybe could have used a few more episodes than six. Like, it maybe could have used, like, nine or something like that, just to flesh out some of the aspects of it a little better. But the cast in general was very good. Jim Caviezel, Ian McKellen, uh, Ruth Wilson, everybody in that was actually rather good. And it's worth watching as kind of a standalone thing, but it's not really a Prisoner show. It, I mean, I think it would have been stronger if it wasn't relying on some of that imagery and some of those iconic elements, because it does kind of sprinkle some of that in there while being very different. But I feel like in terms of the perception of the show and in terms of its own identity that it tries to have, it would have been stronger if it just jettisoned the whole prisoner thing and did its own sort of sort of iconography or whatever. But yes, that was weird. And that was sort of the culmination of years and years of trying to do a follow-up to The Prisoner. Like, there was talks of doing, like, a spiritual sequel not long after this, The Prisoner ended, with McGowan playing a similar character, only instead of being in the village, he's, like, traveling the world and encountering weird stuff or something like that. And then in the 80s, they were going to do a sequel where the the son of Six ends up in the city instead of the village, and that sounds kind of weird. And then going on into the 90s and into the early 2000s, there was talk of a movie and like Patrick McGowan wrote a script and like Simon West was supposed to direct and that immediately just as we go, nope, 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 because I've liked some Simon West movies, not The Prisoner. And supposedly around that time, they're talking about Will Smith playing number six. As much as I love Will Smith, I don't think that would have been a good fit. But there's like some weird things I've read, which doesn't necessarily jive with the information I have because supposedly McGowan wrote a script and Simon West felt it wasn't prisoner enough and so he brought in Christopher McQuarrie to do it and McQuarrie was talking about how it was going to be very close and then ultimately that just didn't happen and and but I've also but I I don't have this script part part of my stutter there but I've seen it on like a high-end sort of collector list where it's it has a list of writers next to the name and it's it's like a Mark Connor and Lawrence Rosenthal, the two guys who had a story credit on a uh, Star Trek six uh, revisions, but with revisions by Christopher McQuarrie and then further revisions by I think it's James Vanderbilt because it just says the last name and Patrick McGowan. And it's dated around 2002. And I'd like to uh, see 
what that's if I ever get my hands on that script, I'd love to see what it's like just to read it and get and get a feel for it. Just because you know it has Patrick McGoo in revisions, so that's just like incredibly tempting. Him and Christopher McQuarrie and Star Trek Six guys and James Vanderbilt, who's done some interesting stuff. That sounds like a really interesting collection of writers. So just to see what they would have uh, come up with would have been pretty cool. But that fell apart, and I do in an interest. No one's. I'm not really sure why exactly. Like the information isn't very. Um, it's very sparse on some of this stuff, unfortunately. But uh, and one interesting thing I read was that Patrick McGowan thought Mel Gibson should direct it, and Mel Gibson is an incredible director, but at the same time, I'm like, you're only saying that because he gave you a really good role in Braveheart, aren't you? <laughs> but, uh, but you know, but then it sort of went into a hibernation, and then around 2006, it was announced that Christopher Nolan was uh, considering directing it, and he was actually, you know, somewhat officially attached at one point. And that's when this draft by uh, David Webb Peoples and Janet Peoples was written. Now, they're a husband and wife team, and together they wrote 12 Monkeys, which to this date I still have not seen. And David by himself, he uh, co-wrote Blade Runner. Like, his revisions were what got uh, Harrison Ford on board, from what I understand. And he also wrote uh, Unforgiven, which is a classic. And he also wrote Soldier, which is, uh, but we'll forgive him that one. So, yeah, it's an interesting set of writers. And Christopher Nolan, who I think is... A director who would do very well with The Prisoner because he loves his, you know, mind-bendy psychological thrillers, or at least at the time he did. And the way he plays around with non-linear timelines, it could be interesting to see what his what his take on it would be, how he would direct. I think his directing style would be very fitting for a Prisoner movie, to say the least. But that brings us to this script now. It doesn't have a title page and it isn't dated, but it is supposed to be the People's Draft. I have that on pretty good authority. And so it opens on black with the uh, the sound of uh, traffic, the sounds of a city, basically. It says it's beyond the closed window, and then there's the buzzing, and an alarm clock buzzes, and it fades in on the number six in red, and it pulls out, and it's on an alarm clock, and it's buzzing at 6.30 a.m., and we're inside what's described as a Washington, D.C. apartment, and we're introduced to a character with no name who is simply referred to as John Doe and eventually number six, but I'll call him Doe because that's what he's called for most of this, and I know that's probably going to rankle some Prisoner fans, but it is what it is. But he wakes up, he's described as being a light sleeper, he sleeps fully clothed on top of the blankets, he gets up, he opens his blinds, showing a vista of Washington, D.C. And so we see him, he gets in his Mercedes, and he goes to the building where he works, and it's it's described as being kind of a generic skyscraper, and says, hmm, maybe he's some kind of ad executive, and he's handing in his resignation to his boss, and he doesn't, the boss is like, are you sure about this? But he doesn't say anything and just leaves, and so he's followed by three excursions and it starts a chase on the freeway where he jumps over the this this action scene is just nuts like he jumps over the the barricade in the middle drives against traffic he drives backwards and he and he's they're like shooting back and forth at each other and you have helicopters joined to chase and the bad guys who are dressed as a uh, SWAT team members but specifically says that they aren't actually police you know, they're, they're shooting tranquilizer darts at him. And there's a bit where he gets rid of one of the excursions because he's driving backwards. And he's driving in the correct side of the highway at this point. And he's driving backwards and shooting at the guy. And then he hits his brakes, lets the guy pass him, and then swings his wheel around and then smacks his car to the side of, like, a car transport. It's like, get himself around in, like, a proper 360 degrees. And then start, starts chasing after the guy. Like, what? <laughs> and, and that's a problem I have with this script is that 
every single action scene is about as big and insane as you can imagine it being and I would have preferred maybe a slow ramping up especially because this script is supposed to get kind of surreal and mindfucky in bits it would have been interesting to see the weirdness and insanity of the action scenes just building as it goes along instead of you know starting completely insane and staying completely insane throughout it like it would i would have preferred it to maybe just be a little bit more restrained especially before he gets to the village when things shouldn't be quite so surreal but it is what it is and so he drives to a parking garage where he pulls out his briefcase and it's full of spy gadgets and he uses a uh, a can of night of a liquid nitrogen to break the lock of a different car of an Audi, and then he uses an electronic key to start it up. So we're getting some uh, some James Bondish spy gadgets. And I remember seeing someone recently because there was a more recent mention of a possible prisoner movie, and somebody said, "Wait for Daniel Craig to stop being James Bond and then get him to do the prisoner." And I'm like, you know, that's kind of a clever idea because Patrick McGowan was a uh, he did a Danger Man, which was a straightforward spy show before he did The Prisoner. So that could be kind of an interesting meta twist. But so then he gets back on the freeway and he heads for Dulles Airport and he drives like out onto like the the runway and like he loses the helicopters by driving near a plane that's taking off and that forces them to crash land i'm like okay that is insane and so then he enters the airport terminal and goes through security and the x-ray is um showing inside of his gadget briefcase all it is showing is uh, is sweaters and the book called zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance was got a chuckle out of me and he pulls seven tickets out of his pockets which he had on him he picks out two that are currently boarding to paris or cancun and so he heads for the paris flight and he begins the board process and he's walking down the jetway but he knows that the men are still pursuing him who they're dressed as a SWAT team and so he throws them off by climbing on top of the jetway onto the airport roof and he walks over to the Cancun flight gets down onto the jetway and gets on and then meanwhile the fake SWAT team is bursting into the plane and scaring the shit out of the people on it which is an amusing little uh aside and so then he finds that the passenger compartment is empty and the flight is a trap and it starts filling with gas and Doe passes out as the movie smashes the black and the title comes up. <laughs> so that's the opening title sequence to The Prisoner amped up over 10 pages into this crazy action scene. On the one hand, I like the idea of taking just, he drives home and then gets gassed and then turns it into lengthy chase scene, ends on a plane, gets gassed. And I like the setup of he tries to be clever and goes over to a different plane, but the other plane turns out to be a trap. And it shows that whoever is behind the village has incredible foresight and is planning like six moves ahead and is almost like supernatural in their abilities, which is very much in keeping with what the village was like in the series. And so he awakens in, it's, it's like a repeat of the opening scene. He awakens in his apartment and it's complete with street noise, but then he opens the blinds, he looks out and he sees himself in the village and it's described as being like a mix of architectural styles. And the noise is, it turns out the street noise is being played on a reel-to-reel recorder and he opens his briefcase and inside he finds sweaters and the Zen of motorcycle maintenance, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, which was just a fake on the x-ray but then i like that they just put this stuff in his briefcase or an identical briefcase just to fuck with him i think that's kind of amusing it's just the kind of thing you would expect people like the village who are in the village would do and so the doorbell rings and the door opens revealing a large seven foot tall man in a tuxedo called the butler who hands him a note addressed to number six the village now the butler was a very different character in the original he was like a short guy and here he's a big like seven foot tall muscular dude who has a couple of fight scenes with uh john doe or number six and he's a very different character basically and he meets a very different fate i won't spoil the original series but i'll say this much 
Butler goes in a very different direction there than he does here. And so it's a note, it's from number two, who's inviting him to a meeting at the Green Dome, at the Green Dome, promising an explanation. And so Doe, who is led by the butler, heads for the dome and he observes the village along the way, which was surrounded by mountains on two sides and the sea on the third. And the other village inhabitants all wear numbers and they're all cheerfully greeting him as he passes by as if they all already know him, which is just, I love this idea of it being like a resort. It's a prison that appears like a resort and everyone acts like they're in a resort. I love the contrast of that. Like, it's a great idea in the uh, in the original series. And it's it's very cool here, too. And so the butler takes Doe to the Green Dome and they enter and pass through a seemingly endless series of rooms before meeting with number two, who's described as an elderly English woman in a circular room. Now, this is not against the original series in any way there were several female number twos in that series so that's there was always a new number two of every episode and i'll address that again later but it's not it's not out of step here you're in a circular room and she's sitting in like this egg-shaped chair which is very much what the room was like in the original series and so she has the butler serve breakfast and she's asking like how do you like your eggs how do you like your tea blah 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 and he's just lift there's like a series of plates already there and when the butler lifts it up like everything is already cooked to order so she already knows everything about him and he just goes mind games and she says are there any other are there any games you know of that don't involve the mind i I I enjoyed the dialogue in this in some places pretty well and then she pulls up pictures of doe from throughout his life and tells him that they the people she works for want to know why he resigned he says it was a matter of conscience and number two says she believes him but that it ultimately doesn't matter and i and it and I like this, and I like the fact that this mysterious they remains a complete mystery throughout this script. Like you learn a lot about the village, but you never find out exactly what is behind the village ever. Like there's still an extra layer of mystery there, which I think is cool because once again, the original series doesn't really explain everything. And so the butler takes him out of the green dome. Uh, well, number two takes him out of the green dome and they leave through a room that's a different room from the one he came in. And she just says, is it now or something, something, to, something to that effect. So already, you know, the mind games are already coming in fast and fierce. And so she takes him on a tour of the village being driven by the butler in an open air taxi. So this time instead of like, they basically drive around in like really big golf carts in the original series. Here, this is described as actually being like a car. And he's pulling out different locations, including this patch of jungle called the park, saying, he's going like, I don't plan on going for a walk anytime soon. She goes, don't, this is not the kind of place you want to take your leisure in or something like that, which I thought was kind of funny. And so she takes him to the beach club and introduces him to some members, including a former Russian admiral designated number 55, as well as number nine, an elderly Englishman whom she says is the oldest current prisoner and, and, and. Doe asks, how long has he been here? And she says, not long enough. And he's playing chess with himself and he gets introduced to her and he's like, oh, this is the new number six. And he goes, yes, yes, yes. And as they walk away, he goes, American figures. And immediately I'm like, they wanted Patrick McGowan to play this character, didn't they? Because it would be a fun meta reference to have him as the oldest prisoner in the in the village. Interestingly enough, at first I thought this character was a cameo, but he ends up being a major character as the script goes on. And that actually fits because... I knew in the original, because there's this old guy who shows up in, who's dressed kind of like the original number six, who shows up in the, the remake miniseries in the first episode, and he dies almost immediately, and he has this line where he says, make sure they know I got out, and they actually asked Patrick McGowan to play that role, and for the longest time I figured he just turned the role down because he didn't want to be involved at all, and recently I was doing some reading. And apparently he turned the role down, but then said he would like to play number two. And I can only imagine how that how how that meeting must have gone. Where it's like, uh, Patrick, we appreciate that and all, but we kind of already cast an actor in that role. We can't get rid of him now. 
<laughs> so yeah, he probably would have, if it was just this little cameo, he probably would have turned it down, but if it was a bigger role, and this would have been around 2006, and he died 2009, and if he was in good enough health, I think he maybe would have said yes to this. So, And there's a little bit more to number nine as we go along, and I'll talk about that as we get there. And so then number two goes, hey, Doe, he goes, hey, number six, you want to take an aerial tour? And Doe goes, okay, sure. And so they go up into the helicopter, and she's pulling all this stuff out to him. And eventually he just throws the pilot out and tries to fly away, only for the supervisor who's in the, the control room of the Green Dome to uh, take to take control and make it start descending. And of course, and they actually hear the body of the pilot hitting the roof of the Green Dome from inside the control room, which got a laugh out of me. They're like, oh, that's the pilot. And so Doe tries to uh, fight the descent and try and take it further up, but then it shocks him. And number two actually says something to the effect of, you might find that shocking right before he does it. And so it's forcing, you know, the helicopter back towards the uh, the helipad. And so Doe just jumps out of the helicopter and into the sea. And, and I think, she, I, I believe, uh, I believe number two says something to either the effect of, I, I saw that coming or you should have done something less predictable. She says, let me guess what comes next. We land, you take me hostage and demand to be released. Otherwise, you'll kill me. Really, number six, I expected more from you. Like what? I don't know. Something surprising. And he just jumps out. She goes, I'd say that qualifies. <laughs> so that actually uh, that actually impresses her, which I, I thought was fun. And so number nine, his, his attention gets caught by the splash. And he just goes, huh, this should be interesting. And so he just starts watching the chaos that unfolds here. And so three boats get sent out to uh, A, B, and C, which is a reference to an episode called A, B, and C. They get sent after him by the supervisor and the crew of A, they nab Doe with what is described as looking like a giant pool skimmer, which just, that's the kind of thing that is silly and awesome at the same time, which totally fits the aesthetic of the prisoner. I love it. And so they pull him out, but then he grabs hold of the pole and knocks the two men out of the boat and starts a boat chase. And so once again, we get a ridiculously gigantic chase scene. And so he uses the pole again to take boat B out of commission. And it's called boat jousting. So yes, this script has had ridiculous motor vehicle shenanigans and boat jousting in it already. And so then he uh and then he uses the boat's anchor to snag boat C and makes it jump out of the water and crash into a house. And the Admiral just goes, that's my house, which was a funny moment. And he steers the boat and tr- attempts to head out to sea, which I misspelled here in the notes. Let me fix that. Against number two's warnings, then she declares an orange alert saying the control room team on edge. And this is when Rover, a big white breathing ball, emerges from the sea and heads towards Doe. And number two orders the medical team prepped and the sea drained, which causes Doe's boat to crash into a reef. And Doe gets caught by the Rover and gets pulled into it and absorbed. And number two is saying, like, don't fight it. It's been known to break bones. And it fades to black. And so that's a really cool moment because it shows all this stuff. It, it shows Rover. And I'm just imagining what a really cool big budget version of Rover would look like because it's described as being organic somehow. And, and instead of because it like quivers a lot like a balloon would, like a big rubber ball would in the original series. But here it's actually described as breathing as if it's alive in some fashion. And that's never elucidated on in this script that the Rover or Rovers, as the case may be, are alive or in some way like it's never explained but i like the implication that it's somehow alive and somehow has a mind of its own because in the original series are kind of was like because there was an episode i remember where number six is walking around the village perimeter like testing it and rover would roll up when you got too close to the edge and just look at them and just stand there like it might as well have had a giant troll face on it in those moments which was a lot of fun so yeah i like that idea and I like the idea of like the quivering being that it's actually breathing I, I just think that's a really cool image i'd love to see this realized in like modern day like the modern day level of special effects especially with christopher nolan directing who loves his uh practical effects to see how he would 
try to do that in camera, that would be really cool. Especially to see how he would do some of these action scenes because he loves to do everything for real. Although I don't know how you do some of this shit for real, if I'm being honest with you. That's another problem I have with the action scenes. Like, how would you even shoot this? Like, just physically, how would you block the scene? <laughs> but but yeah, but you know, it, it, it's interesting to think of how he would direct some of this stuff. And I like how Rover here feels like a genuine threat. And he always did on the series, but they definitely amp it up here to an extent. But so, like I said, it cuts to black and we get a scene of colors and finally images of a woman and child. And number two, and then someone called the doctor are heard discussing this. And it's a female voice still for number two. And they say they're Doe's families and they speculate, is Doe's family, and they speculate whether he's using them to block the information they want or if this just means that both the family and the information they want is just buried very deeply. And so the doctor says they can't dig any deeper without damaging the tissue and number two relents saying they'll have to do things the hard way. And so this is where Doe awakes strapped to a vertical gurney in a cruciform position where he's greeted by number two who's now male and says, but he says we just had breakfast only an hour ago and he also has the same birthmark on his hand that the female number two had and he says there hasn't been a female number two in over 20 years and he seems to be implying that rovers the rover attack somehow um, hurt his memories in some way and so that's when the the doctor enters and he assures number two that doe is healthy enough to undergo the test which involves force feeding tubes full of some sort of truth serum down his throat and asking him what color a red ball is and he says it's red but the doctor insists he's lying and forces more of the serum down his throat every time he says so and eventually after saying this ball is red like countless times it's like it's, it's quite a few times actually you know the doctor says hey doe you finally told the truth and then doe passes out okay a couple things i like about this scene the the nature of this this unbeatable test where they eventually even though you've been telling the truth the whole time they don't they they insist you aren't and then eventually say you are and that oh no you finally told the truth and you've been lying this whole time seems very much like something the prisoner would do and seems very much in the uh in in the spirit of the whole free will theme that the series that the series had going on in fact this scene where the male number two is introduced is where we get the uh the uh the the opening dialogue from the series actually that's in the intro for every episode it says what do you want information won't get it by hook or by crook we will yeah you get you get that here in this scene from number two and also i do like the fact that they swapped out the number two because it's a reference to uh the series where like i said in every episode there was a new number two it was always there were a couple of actors who were reused more than once but mostly it was a different number two every episode and some of them were women some of them were men so i think this is a cool uh a cool reference to that and i just love the mind fucky fact that it's a completely different person but they're still claiming to be the same number two from just an hour ago as he says because it definitely would throw the audience for a loop in a very surreal prisonery kind of way and i do like the fact that this is never addressed or explained exactly what is going on with number two like it is clear that there's a lot of manipulation going on here but this specific element the change in number two is never is never addressed and in fact my only problem with this whole number two swap here is that we don't get at least one more with like the third one just to keep the theme going throughout the script like the beginning of the third act we get another number two with yet again no explanation i thought that would have been pretty interesting but to uh continue on with the plot doe wakes up in his uh room again it's a repeat of that scene for the third time but this time he finds sarah an old colleague of his who disappeared and an implied old flame of his in the kitchen cooking breakfast and he doesn't believe her and he just basically he basically is just like not having any of her shit and basically makes her leave 
he basically pushes her into leaving by being an asshole, essentially. <laughs> and so then he looks at the cameras and says, he knows he knows you're there and he's, you're going to have to try harder than finding an old girlfriend, as he says. And so number two, who is watching along with the supervisor, seems pleased at this result. And they watch as Joe flushes the toilet and, and number two says, well, he's checking the Coriolis effect, trying to find out what hemisphere he's in. And so Doe heads out and wanders around the village, examining the flora and the soil to try to triangulate his location. And he's met by number nine who tells him that it's useless as plants and soil from all over the place are in the village. And checking the sun is no use because he can't know for sure how long he's been knocked out since he got there. And number nine then suggests he make a clock. Timepieces aren't allowed in the village. And they say, you know, you don't, they don't believe in keeping a rigorous schedule, which I believe was quite different in the original. I believe there was sometimes they would be scheduled to do things, but I could be misremembering. And that they'll speak again if he manages to do so. And so Doe also meets, meets Sarah again, who apologizes. And she mentions that the village is run by somebody named Number One, whom she hasn't met. And she also says that Doe will have to trust somebody if he wants to get out of there. And so interesting, first mention of number one, I find that interesting because in the series, like almost immediately, as soon as number two introduces himself, number six is just like, who is number one? And I remember watching that for the series for the first time with my dad, and he said, you know, it's interesting he immediately assumes that there's a number one, because as far as he knows, there could be no number one. The person in charge could be like number 66 or something like that. And so it's interesting food for thought. And of course, is ultimately a number one, sort of, at the end of the series. I won't get into that in any detail. I'll bring it up again later, just because I don't, I don't want to spoil anything. I'll bring it up again later when the script goes more into some number one stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that interesting. I just wanted to point that out. And so that night, Doe sneaks into the park, which is a jungle, essentially. And he approaches a security camera from a blind spot above it, yanking out a digital display, which he's going to use to make a clock with. And that's when he ranks out a couple, he yanks out like another piece too. And that's when Rover shows up, pinning Doe in the tree he climbed, and then turns orange and starts burning the forest down, pursuing Doe as as he jumps from tree to tree, all while number two and the supervisor watch. Doe heads for the bluff overlooking the sea, only find the cliff is blocked by fire. And he's forced to climb back into the burning trees and jump over the fire and over the cliff and into the water. He's actually hurting himself as he does this. And so the supervisor orders the fires contained and the subduers dispatched. Dispatched, and the helicopter pours flame retardant chemicals over the park, and heavily armored subduers move in with cattle prods to retrieve Rover. Meanwhile, Doe emerges from the sea, rewires the digital display to make a clock. And he returns to his house to find number two waiting for him. Like, ooh, you naughty boy. (laughs) And he asks Doe why he quit and then berates him. Because Doe says, I'm not going to tell you. He's like, I don't want to conform to what you want me to do. Something along those lines. Actually, let me, let me pull this, uh, let me pull this, this scene up, actually. He says, you, you really, oh, number six will be the death of me. There is that possibility. You really want to keep up with all this, the lying, the games, when all I'm asking from you is so simple. And that is cooperation. Conformity. Your hypocrisy is stunning. My hypocrisy? You, who worked for the U.S. government for 15 years, claimed to be nonconformist? Maybe I had a change of heart. And then number two talks about he's read his files. He says, I've seen what you've done. You don't have a heart. You imagine yourself to be a hero? The vocation you chose was taking lives. You became nothing more than a weapon, a gun that men more powerful than you can choose where to point and pull the trigger. And who do you work for? No, we're talking about you now. And he talks about, like, he could have been anything. He had all this potential, but he chose to be a hired killer for the government, essentially. And then he says, he says, oh, you're also responsible for getting your family killed because you were supposed to have, you're not supposed to have a family in this line of work and just having them put them in danger. And you made enemies and one of them killed your family. And then he says, and then he, he says, he asked for Doe to hand over the camera that they, they, 
we hand over the uh, the things they took from the camera and so Doe tries to play dumb about it only for number two to turn on the TV and show him a security feed of Sarah in an electrified room and so Doe relents and hands number two something it's never really said what he hands over because he still has the clock he's made with him so I guess that's why I'm assuming he took multiple pieces from the camera before and so number two leaves and uh, Sarah is spared from the getting electrified and so the next evening, Doe walks past the park, already replaced with a different kind of forest, and meets Sarah, who thanks him. And she also tries to engage him in relationship talk, but he says he never loves her the same way he did. And he, I believe this is where she says something to the effect of, you know, I could have understood you. I was part of, you know, we were part of the same, you know, profession. He says, oh, maybe I maybe I chose them because they were outside of outside of all of this and I needed that that grounding or something like that but he basically shuts down any sort of relationship talk which is very number six because in the series there's multiple women who try to engage him in in that sort of way and he just sort of brushes it off like it's rather amusing just the way he just get the way that there'll be a couple of women who seem very very into him and he just seems more annoyed than anything I, I love the way Magoo plays that but this is very uh that is very prisoner the way she tries to start a relationship thing and he just goes nah pass <laughs> And after he leaves, he pulls the makeshift clock from his pocket and checks the time, showing he still has it. And so over the next couple of days, he checks the clock at sunset and notices it happens at the precise time every day, which is not normal. And so he meets with number nine again, and they walk to the cliffs where number nine uses a special device to drown out any eavesdropping of white noise. And they agree not to share any personal information so as to, uh, so they don't have anything one could use against the other if one of them is actually a bad guy. And they determine to work together to escape. And they concoct a plan together to escape over the mountains using a helicopter. The autopilot in the green dome can be overridden with a special device, but Doe will have to break in to get it. Number nine proposes swimming in through an intake pipe, going through three filtration, filtration chambers, one of which has a mesh grating across it, which we'll have to cut through. And there's a 90 second delay before the first two open up and through a hatch in the third, which boils the water. The hatch leads to an elevator shaft that Doe will need to find a way to scale to, I believe it's the 10th floor, where the corridor is key to the current number two's precise weight. And finally, there's a door at the end of the corridor locked to number two's 20-digit code that's frequently changed. And then number Doe gives, number not, number Doe, number nine gives Doe three days to plan, handing him a playville for a performance of No Exit by the Village's Drama Society where they'll meet. So yeah, we're getting a, um, a heist plant basically in the middle of this, which is kind of fun. And so the night of the play, Doe meets with number nine outside the theater and watches with a makeshift telescope that he makes from uh, number nine's glasses as number two locks the dome with his code and he memorizes it. And while moving among the crowd in the theater, the supervisor tells number two that he's aware of number one being displeased with his performance. But number two senses the power play he has in mind and shuts it down right there. He has a line here I quite like. Let me skip ahead to that. If you were to fail with this subject, you could scoop up my job? No, not at all. I'm merely trying to warn you that people are talking. Oh, I apologize. Thank you for warning me. Not at all. And supervisor, if I ever hear that talk is is coming from you, I'll gut you and leave you for the crows. And it actually does say in the script for this male number two, think Anthony Hopkins. So I'm just imagining Anthony Hopkins playing this role. And it's, it's, pre, it's pretty, um, it's a, it's a pretty good uh, uh, mental image to have. And so then number two goes over and starts talking to number nine and, uh, and number six, John Doe. And so they're, and so they're talking. And while this goes on, number two, he sets up so that number two accidentally steps on his foot and determines his weight in this way. And so Doe quietly sneaks out as the play starts, fills his tuxedo jacket with rocks to match number two's weight, which I'm a little, I'm a little iffy on this actually working because they say it has to be to the precise gram. I'm not sure I buy into this. 
But uh, but so he, he dives into the sea and swims into the intake pipe. And somehow he doesn't lose a single rock during all this. And so Doe makes his way through the filtration chambers, not without some snags, of course. And he finds that the elevators, that then, of course, like he, he takes a while, like it takes a little bit longer, like he gets there, like it takes a while to hack through the uh, the mesh. And he actually loses like his, 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 uh, his crude knife that he has. And he gets into the third chamber and he realizes that the... Uh, the elevator is at the bottom of the shaft blocking the hatch, and so he has to wait in there as the water is heating up, which is not good for him. And so eventually begins ascending, and he clings to the bottom, managing to cling to the door, managing to jump to the door at the correct floor, and so he has to rewire it to open. He has to open it with his teeth, and he actually has to make the connection with his teeth. It's just, and during this whole bit of him sneaking in, it's it's um intercut with the play, no exit, and dialogue from the play about how what's outside this room? Oh, it's more staircases and more and more passages. And I'm paraphrasing here because I, I don't want to skip ahead to that and read read that out verbatim. But it's, it's basically the idea being that the more you escape, the more you, you find yourself still imprisoned, which is kind of on the nose, but does reflect, you know, the way the village often seems to work. And so he, and actually, before he enters the corridor, which is um, key to the weight of number two, he act, Joe, John Doe actually stops and he accounts for the fact that he absorbed water into his clothes and so casts aside a few rocks and gets himself down to the correct weight. And he goes down the corridor, enters the code, and he enters the room only to find Sarah in there working on something. And he gets her to point out the exit keys, and we see number two at the theater saying, now, and then the alarm goes off. And he passes off the key to Sarah, and then the butler and ten men enter the room and come to get him. He kills one with just a casual neck snap and then sarah warns him as the floor starts to electrify and so doe and the butler and several more men survive by climbing on the furniture so basically this turns into a fight scene version of the floor is lava and so doe and fights all the men and basically knocks them onto the floor and then he starts uh, he fights the butler who uh, gets him into like a hold and then breaks his arm which knocks him out and so Doe awakes in his room again, and the scene of Sarah prepping, preparing breakfast plays out almost identically, only now it's with number two, the male number two. And I'm like, number two, what did you do to John Doe while he was asleep, you naughty boy? <laughs> and then he claims that Doe's arm was never broken, and, he specu- and then he starts speculating that Doe resigned over the death of his family, and Doe is like, no, that wasn't the reason. And then number two drops a bombshell. He says the man who killed them is in the village, and number two will tell him who he is and arrange for him to get revenge as long as he divulges the information he wants. But Doe refuses, and number two leaves, saying he'll be in the dome if he wants to make the deal. And that's when Doe looks around and he notices that there's a whole bunch of pictures of his family have been bolted and in place in the room just to taunt him and that's just such a fucked up mind game to put pictures of this guy's dead family all around him just a mess with his head supremely messed up and so this is where doe goes to visit sarah and he threatens to kill her while number two watches over the hidden cameras and he relents after sarah says it won't matter to number two even if she is working for him because he doesn't care she's just another pawn and so she takes him to the kitchen where she makes tea with their backs to the camera and she says she helped Doe because she loved him, but at the same time, while the camera is blocked, she writes on a notepad that she isn't Sarah, and then dumps the paper into the tea to destroy the evidence. And so they meet again later on an outdoor path of one of those white noise machines, where Sarah says that she kept the escape key and replaced it with a fake one to throw off number two. And she also reveals that she's an imposter, someone who was altered to look like someone a prisoner was close to, was close with in order to manipulate them, and that she, this person has apparently done this many times, and that the real Sarah was a prisoner, but that she died three years ago. She also tells him that he's been drugged for three months while his arm healed, and that the village is on island, which is, uh, it's an uncharted island, which is off somewhere 
southwest of Sri Lanka. And that his watch is really just deployed by number two to control him, saying, do you really think that there's any piece of technology in here that they don't control, which is kind of a food for thought moment, kind of paranoia inducing. And she also claims that number nine has been working for number two all along, and they knew Sarah was really dead and didn't say anything. And so Doe meets with number nine at a camera blind spot where he confronts them about this. And Sarah steps out and she says that Doe has to kill one of them so that they won't betray him during the escape and that he has to choose. And then number nine hands him a knife to do the deed and tries to win him over by saying that Doe's running the village killed his wife. And so Doe knocks out number nine with the knife handle and Sarah's like, you know, you're leaving a loose hands. And he goes, it's my decision. She goes, hand me the knife so I can finish the job off. And he goes, I will leave you lying there next to him. It's like, ooh, I love that. That's a badass moment. And so they head for the helipad. And so they're, they're watching the helipad from like the bushes. And she goes, okay, let's find a way to do this. We maybe should try and be stealthy. They just walks out and casually snaps another guard's neck. And she goes, or the direct approach. And so they take care of the guards and they evade a rover attack where like she gets in the helicopter and then he has to like run around and then evade the rover and like jump and grab onto the strut in midair, which would be a pretty cool action scene. And so they they use the escape key and manage to fly over the mountains and three helicopters pursue them. But Doe manages to knock two out of commission. Like he does this thing where like he has her fly up under one of them because if you cut out like the air from underneath it, that means the rotor won't work. I don't know if that's actually how a helicopter works, but uh, but that makes one of them crash and he gets and he like leads on a chase. And he leads them on a chase for like, for like, for like, a, for like, in like a really narrow space between the mountains and gets one to crash. And then that's when uh, number two orders them hit with an EMP blast, which strands Doe and Sarah on the side of a mountain and kills the men in the other helicopters. And he actually, um, he actually like climbs down lower to help her out. And then the third helicopter, and then the other chop, then another chopper is sent in to retrieve them with a pilot and a sniper on board. And the sniper manages to hit Doe with a tranquilizer round, but no, Doe knocks him out of the helicopter with a rock, first blood style, cuts his safety line. Like he like, the guy like has like a safety line, he jumps over to the guy and is like grappling with him, then cuts the safety line, then climbs, so that guy falls to his death and he climbs up the, uh, the line to the vehicle where he engages the pilot in a fight. And basically, long story short, the helicopter ends up getting up hanging from the side of the mountain by one of its struts and they are Doe and the pilot are fighting while standing on the slowly cracking windshield and they have to move very slowly as it cracks so that it doesn't break and they fall to their deaths and this seems like peep the people's is were uh, very much uh it seems like they had just watched Jurassic Park 2 and that scene with the glass in the trailer cracking it seems like they had kind of watched that before they uh, wrote this but it's a very cool idea for an action scene very tense and suspenseful and I like the fact that Doe is actually trying to be a voice of reason here and saying things like you know we should maybe stop fighting and stand still so that we don't die but then the guy is so you know intent on killing him or capturing him that they still continue to fight but then Sarah uh, comes to the rescue knocks the guy out with a pipe where, with a crowbar, which where did she get that again? I, I I must have missed that. And pulls Joe out of there. And then I think she like throws the crowbar in and breaks the glass, which causes the pilot to fall to his death. And then they attempt to climb over the mountain. But Sarah realizes that the nearly unconscious Doe can't support her weight. And so she lets go, dying so that he can climb over before he passes out from the tranquilizer round. And so that's kind of an interesting moment that she would choose that, that this person who isn't the person who cared about him would choose this sacrifice. And so you're left wondering, was this real or is this all part of a ploy? And you don't find out for quite a while. 
what actually happened here. And so Doe, he climbs over the top, finding a much less steep mountainside leading down to a jungle, and he begins to pass out, but is carried to a jungle village by native tribesmen, one of whom gives him a phone, and he calls up his people at the U.S. government to apprise him of his location, and so helicopters show up, they pick him up, and they say he's being evacuated to the USS Indianapolis, which is, I think it's an aircraft carrier, or a battleship or something like that. Doe passes out, and then he wakes aboard a private plane with his old boss, and at first he's like, hey, you were the last person I saw before I was attacked and kidnapped so I don't trust you and he goes hey look out the window he looks out the window and they seem to be flying in towards Washington DC so that puts him at ease for a bit and then bo- and then the boss asks what Doe why he resigned and he actually gives contradictory um, amounts of time for how long he's been away he says three days and then he says three months and then that kind of clues Doe into you know not everything here is as it seems and so then Doe is like fuck it and he goes and he opens the emergency door only to find that it was a fake plane on a gimbal all along and the the vista that he saw outside the window was being projected on the screen and so number two greets doe saying that he passed the test and is ready for the next level and then number nine is revealed to have been in on it and then injects doe with a tranquilizer and the supervisor is like your plan for number six it was ingenious blah 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 like this idea that they made and this idea that he like thinks he's escaped but then hasn't and he's, it's all part of the manipulation to try and get him to let his guard down and say why he resigned. That happened at least once in the series. In fact, there's several seemingly successful escape attempts that go completely tits up in the series. And so that, the idea that, you know, him thinking he's gone, but it's all part of the manipulation, that's very much like the series. So that's been adapted into here. And so number nine asks number two if he can see his wife. And so two obliges only for the wife to be horribly disfigured and attached to life support cables and confined to a wheelchair. And then number two says, I didn't do anything to her. It's what she did. She resisted the treatments and then the doctor got carried away. You can take her home now. And so this seems like it's kind of like a ridiculous miscalculation on number two's part here. But as we'll see. Doe is taken to the doctor and strapped to a chair, and the doctor is about to go to work on Doe with some nasty-looking instruments when number nine enters. And we get this really cool scene here where he says, He asks the doctor, Can you count to ten? Because that's the... the that is the number of breaths you will have before you die. And so we get this action scene where the doctor, he says something and then number nine says, that's your first breath. And it, it's like focusing in on the doctor's breaths while number nine is taking care of all these guards. And he grabs onto the doc. He takes care of all of them and kills them and then grabs onto the doctor's throat and says, well, he still has one breath left and says, are you sure you can hold this? And the guy tries to hold it. Like, this is a really cool scene. I'm going to have to jump ahead to this one and see if I can read out the dialogue here. That was only nine. You've got one more. Of course, number nine saying that was only nine. Clever. The doctor pinned to the wall holding his breath. You can't hold it forever. One last breath of air before I take your life for what you did to her. The doctor whimpers, his face turning red, his eyes bulging out. Number nine waiting patiently. Scalpel thingy raised. Better make it a good one. The doctor can't hold it anymore. He finally gasps. And number nine stabs the thing down to the doctor's chest, twitching it viciously, which is misspelled as viscously. The doctor gurgles, sliding down to a dead heap on the floor. That was cool. That that was just such a badass moment there. And uh, and so he goes to uh, number... So number nine goes over to Doe and then tries to... Uh, he basically picks up this 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 needle to which is basically supposed to be a stimulant to uh, counteract the sedative he's been injected with and like and and doe actually tries to fight him off and picks up something to stab him with and goes you can cut my throat if you want to but i'm injecting this and it turns out he is on the level about that and then the supervisor notices the dead guard and he says he basically says okay we're going to go meet number one and then the supervisor notices the dead guards on the camera screens and alerts number two who seems casual and unsurprised so, ooh, the plot thickens. Didn't even know you had a plot. 
And so number nine leads Doe to a glass elevator, which he says works on air pressure, which is important in a minute. And then they, they take it down to a place called the Central Cavern. And during this whole sequence, number nine is explaining to Doe that he spent years trying to escape. And then he met this woman there and he fell in love with her. And she, and she turned out to, it actually turned out to be genuine. It wasn't just another trap. But then, and then he gave up trying to escape. And then they took her from him and said he could have her back if he helped subvert another prisoner. And he, this is where he says, my number used to be six, but when they flipped me, they flipped that as well. So you can take this as a loose 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 sequel to the original series in a way if you if you choose to or you can take it as a reboot which is probably preferable because the idea that number six got flipped is just kind of not viable at all so it's 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 alluding to the him being the original number six if they did get Patrick Magoo in to play the role that's how I take it but you know while this is going on you know the supervisor he's checking the security cameras and he sees that the dead guards in the doctor's room and so he alerts number two who seems casual and unsurprised okay I already read that part out also, okay, supervisor, he visits number two in his office and he says he's sending guards down to protect number one. But number two says not to as sending low-level functionaries to a high security level would break protocol. He goes like, really? You're... And the supervisor says, really? You know, you're insisting on protocol at a time like this? And then number, then the supervisor goes to uh, send the order anyways and then the uh, number two stabs him to death. Says, you know, I never really liked you after all. And so they're in this, so number nine and Doe are in the central cavern. They arrive, they walk along a metal walkway. They arrive at a giant metal door marked with a big number one. And they enter and they find a round room with the walls covered in video screens. Now I am going to uh, read some of this dialogue out itself. I'm going to read this scene out verbatim. Interior number one, day. A huge ball-shaped room with thousands of video screens making up the walls, the ceiling, the floor. Each showing a different view of something, hands making breakfast, someone talking to the camera, etc. Doe takes a step towards one of the walls, noticing that all the screens show point of view shots, almost as if, oh my god, they see through people's eyes. How? Nanotechnology. Nanomachines, son! (laughs) Couldn't resist, sorry. Tiny machines injected into the bloodstream, collected in the retina, undetectable and unremovable. These, these aren't all in the village. No, they're not. Doe zeroes in on one particular screen. That's the House of Representatives. Parliament? All these people? Don't know about it. How could they not know? Because they never knew they were injected. After receiving anesthesia to undergo surgery, after a night of drinking that induces a blackout, while grabbing a catnap on Air Force One, how did you not know? He points to one screen in particular. Doe looks at it and gapes. It's his POV. He's got one in his head, too. The best informants are the ones who don't know they're informing, and the best marionettes are the ones who don't know they have strings attached. He who controls the information controls the world. You're talking about world domination. Not domination. Modification. Consider this. In 1989, if you had enough information, you could make a few financial moves and cause the bottom to drop out of the Soviet Union. You could end the Cold War. Yes, in the first half of the 20th century, global-wide conflict erupted twice. In the second half, no. Yes, we haven't had a world war in almost 60 years. Why do you think that is? The village isn't about keeping people in. It's about looking out and not just looking, but doing, shaping, changing. People always complaining that the world's becoming too conformist and no one ever stops to wonder what it's conforming to. Doe doesn't respond, can't respond, he's too floored. Seen or unseen, he who controls the information controls the world. Now finally you see. We have to stop it. We have to shut it down. I'm in total agreement. So all of this is number one. Number nine smiles at him. Not all. That whole concept right there. So cool. The idea that they're not after information for the sake of information. That they're after it because it's this whole idea of modifying the world to the way whoever is behind the village sees fit. 
is really paranoia-inducing and interesting and way ahead of its time, too, this whole idea of surveillance on this massive scale, because this was not in the public consciousness the way it is now, back when this would have been written around 2007 or so, I'm, I'm guessing. Like, that that didn't become, like, publicly, like, a known trope or anything until, you know, WikiLeaks and then Snowden. And then, you know, every movie started doing their version of it, including, you know, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which did a very interesting take on it. It's interesting that they do this because this whole idea of surveillance and information is very much part of the prisoner. In fact, there's a scene in The Prisoner, the original, where they're talking about how in the future the world could become the village. And so that's... And so that's and so this is very much taking that that scene and just expanding upon it and giving its own twist on it, which I like. And so that's when number one descends from the ceiling. It's a half of a human torso fused with metal cables and hooked up to the machine as well as life support. And he starts talking in this croaking voice saying he expected number nine to be the one sent to kill him and then tells Doe to do what he was sent here to do. And Doe insists he wasn't sent, but number one says he's wrong and that killing him won't change a thing and just smiles. And then Doe says it will be a hell of a start and then yanks out his life support tube and then kills him. And so number one is dead. And I love that implication that even with number one dead, like that doesn't change anything. Things will still go on in some form. Like it adds to that layer of mystery. So it means that things aren't quite as cut and dry as they could be. Now, to talk about this scene, explaining number one seems kind of antithetical to the prisoner because in the prisoner, you do see number one in the last episode. And I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a very weird, very bizarre thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and isn't explained very well. And it's probably on purpose because it's probably meant to be a big metaphor. Here, they've given him a face, but I feel like giving number one an identity of sorts could possibly... I mean, I feel like they, they, there's still that sense of mystery around the village that not everything is necessarily as it seems. So I feel like it still works. Like, it's not horrible. And I still like... It's just such a cool idea for number one that I think it's... It, I, think, I, I think it still pretty well works. So, okay, number two calls the butler and orders him to get his best man and go to the cave to kill Doe in number nine. And in number one chamber, number nine has Doe plug him into number one's tubes and wires so that he can overload the system. And he says he can't take out the ocular cameras at first, only the stationary. So Doe rips a piece of cloth off his jacket and blindfolds himself. As he goes outside, he walks onto the metal walkway in the central cavern and starts fighting the guards. And he dominates them in spite of his blindfold. So yes, we now have an absolutely insane blindfolded fight scene. Wow completely nuts and I kind of love it and so Doe takes them all out and he takes the elevator back up but the blindfold actually works against him and the butler is waiting outside of the elevator and then basically punches him back in and so they fight in the elevator and starts going up and down and up and down while they're inside it and they basically he shoves the basically the butler eventually shoves him into the ceiling so hard it causes the glass to break and it fucks up the air pressure system and so the elevator plummets and doe peeks out from underneath his uh his blindfold sees the big orange emergency break and so he hits that and that causes them to stop three feet above the bottom so they're back in the central cavern and the fight continues and so while this is going on number two orders the sea drained and we learn here that the water drains into the cavern and also this whole idea that they can control the sea is just so surreal and just wow. It makes them seem almost godlike in a way. And now that you're seeing kind of the function of how it works a little bit, it kind of demystifies the, the magic trick, which I think I, I think I find that very cool. And so pretty much what happens is that they're fighting. And so Doe, you know, flips around under the walkway and then the butler gets smacked by the water and knocked off of it while the water just kind of goes around Doe. And so eventually... The water subsides and Doe's still blindfolded. He climbs up out of the cavern and into the drained sea near the village. And the people are watching him going, what the fuck is going on? Which is pretty funny. 
And so this is when the butler climbs up out of the hole again. This time, Joe, they, they fight on the edge of the big hole. And so they're fighting, and uh, Doe manages to get him into a hole and break his arm. Re- refer, you know, referring back to uh, that that part earlier where the butler broke his arm, and he drops him down into the hole and kills him. And that just as the butler yanks off his blindfold, and number two can see through his eyes again. And this guy falls down the hole, and Doe says, "And I laughed so hard when I read this." He goes, "If he's not dead this time, I give up." That that would that was that was a good laugh. And so this is when number nine finally overloads the entire system and taking out even the ocular cameras offline and number two orders all of them. He basically just starts typing um, stuff into the uh, the computer and sends all of them after Doe. And a technician says this is crazy and impossible to control. And this turns out to be 100 rovers, all different colors, which pour out of the hole and start pursuing Doe into the village. And he actually looks over the uh, the edge of the hole before we find out what's going on and says, oh shit, which was another pretty chuckle-worthy moment. This is an absolutely insane idea, and I love this being the finale that he's being chased down by a hundred rovers. I do think it's unfortunate that we don't get to see what different rovers do, because we understand from uh, from the earlier scene in the park that orange rovers have different... orange rovers can set stuff on fire, but we don't find out what any of the other colors can do, which I think is a bit of a shame and a missed opportunity, but this is still a very cool, tense chase scene. And so Doe snags a village taxi and he saves the Admiral from the rovers and he's saying, drive, drive, drive. And he slips into an American accent and Doe says, I thought you were Russian. And that's when he's revealed to be one of the guards essentially in disguise. And he pulls a gun, he pulls a tranquilizer gun on Doe, but Doe gets it away from him and shoves him out of the car. And he gets painfully absorbed by the, uh, by the, uh, the rovers. And so at the Green Dome, like, there's regular guards who are put together, who are dressing up in some doer gear, and number two tells Doe's boss to join the guards and heading out and physically looking for Doe, and it's going like, well, you can die out here, maybe, you can maybe die out there, or you can definitely die in here, or some line along, some, something along those lines. But Doe, as he, he hit above the doors, and he goes, hey, Bill, which is the name of his boss, and then sneaks in just as he leaves, and the doors seal, and then the guards all get rolled over by the rovers. <laughs> And so Doe, he confronts number two in his office, shooting him with a dart and shackling him to his chair. Apparently the chair has shackles built into it and he like keys the uh, the, the command into the computer. And so this is where number two review, reveals that the whole thing was a ploy to make Doe kill number one, who is growing suspicious of number two. And then Doe is about to kill him when Sarah enters the room, and this one is the real Sarah. And she says that the one who died really was a double and really did fall in love with him. And so Sarah says she was in on the plan all along. She says she got picked up in Romania, like the double said earlier, so that part really was true. And she says she uh, she was the one who, she, she got clued into number two's plan, and she selected Doe as the assassin because she knows just how, how good he is at this. And so she also had her own ulterior motive, and she planned to betray number two and hand the position of power over the village over to John Doe. But Doe refuses the offer, shuts off the main power switch, which reveals that the sky in the surrounding area was a hologram, and that the village is located in a crater that's 20 miles in diameter somewhere in the middle of the desert, which is pretty cool reveal. I'm not really sure if that makes sense with them climbing up mountains and shit earlier, but... It is kind of a cool, I do like the idea that they escape and apparently they're near Sri Lanka, but then it turns out they're not because in the original series, at least three different locations are given for the village and who knows if any of them were true. And then at the, well, you get two, which could very well be fake. And then you get one at the ending, which could be real, but you're not really sure. You kind of have to guess at it. And of course it was filmed in Wales. So none of those locations are anywhere near where Wales actually was, where the actual shooting locations for the exteriors were. 
And so Doe just walks away and Sarah points a gun at him again, but he snatches it away and takes it apart saying that he's resigned. And then Doe walks among the chaotic, freaked out villagers. We see that number two is alone in his office again when the badly burned and limping number nine enters. And he enters something into the control console, causing seawater to erupt out of the hole and start flooding the village. Now, I'm not sure why the console is still working after the power was shut off, but whatever. And this is where I want to talk about what Doe's, I mean, what number two's real miscalculation was, is that he manipulated this thing to take out number one almost perfectly. The only thing he didn't see, he didn't foresee, was that number nine would be would be uh, would be driven enough to plug himself into the machine. That that's what I think his real that's what I think his real miscalculation was. Is that he figured that they would just be uh, they could just be subdued outside the chamber. He didn't think that they would that one of them would plug themselves in. That that's what I think his real miscalculation was. But okay, so Doe gathers the remaining villagers onto a beached ship, and then we see Sarah sitting in Doe's room in tears, looking at the pictures of his family as the water as the fa- as the room floods. And then we see number nine and number two staring each other down as the office floods. The ship is carried away on the water, only to be found by a police patrol car and an. Arizona desert. I love that little stare down that like the water is going over their heads and they're still staring each other down. I thought that was pretty neat. That's a pretty evocative image. And so we then see a Pentagon meeting where everyone is in an uproar over the story that's being told by the people from the boat. And they're all missing spies from around the world, some of them with files going back way, way back, some say to the OSS, which predates the CIA. And so the Secretary of Defense wants to hear from Doe, and his aide tells him he's been locked up. And so the Secretary goes to visit him at the solitary wing of a military prison, only to find that he's disappeared. A cell phone left lying on the bunk rings, and the Secretary answers, getting a call from Doe. He says he's told him everything he knows and that the rest is up to them. And so the Secretary Secretary says they didn't even find the crater. They checked the coordinates and didn't find anything, not even a crater. And so Doe says they must have packed up and and are starting again somewhere else. And he says, I'm sure you'll figure it out, but I'm done with this. And so he hangs up, reveals him to be on the plane. And then it cuts to one year later and Doe Doe is shopping at a street market in Marrakesh. And he's talking to a, uh, a newspaper vendor in a language. I'm assuming it's like the Moroccan variant of Arabic. It doesn't say what the language is. And so they're talking. And they're talking in the language, and then right as it ends, the vendor says in perfect English, be seeing you, which is a common phrase heard in the village. And then he walks away, he just takes his vendor cart and walks away as John Doe watches. And that's the end, implying that whatever, you know, was going on, maybe something, maybe he never really escaped. Or maybe, you know, the people behind the village have set up again, and they're definitely watching him, and they intend to pull him back into it again. You can interpret it several ways, but that's the ending. I can say overall, I really enjoy this script. I think it's got... A lot of really good psychological manipulation in here, which is very prisoner. It's got a lot of action, which really isn't prisoner, but I feel like that's a concession just to get a big budget movie made. But I do think the action is very exciting and very good. I like the way Rover is used here. I like the fact that you never really find out what the number two switch is all about. Uh, I I like the number nine character, how he's kind of an homage to the original number six. And I I just like the way this is done. It feels very much in the spirit of the TV show, just different. Just a little bit more action-heavy and some other things. I do very much like the script. My criticisms are I do think that the action scenes, they were very hard to take notes about because they are all completely insane and detailed and just a lot of stuff going on. And I feel like it would have been better if they scaled it back and then that big crazy moment with the, the rovers climbing up out of the hole could have been like the biggest, craziest moment of all. And also, you know that the shot of like 100 rovers chasing down number six, if this movie had actually gotten made, that would have been the shot that was in every trailer and everyone would have been like, that shouldn't have been the trailer, fuck. (laughs) That seems to happen all the time recently. Although Christopher Nolan trailers generally tend not to spoil too much, but, but, uh, but you never know. 
And so, yeah, but overall that, and I would have liked maybe one more number two switch just to keep in, just, just, just to keep, just to keep the audience on their toes and to homage you know, the number two switches from the TV show again. And just maybe, you know, a little bit, a little bit more mind fucking in the third act because it does just kind of turn into an action movie right at the end. Maybe a little bit more psychological stuff there. Like the, the Sarah reveal could have been handled a little bit more weirdly because if you're going to do a prisoner th- movie, you got to go for the weird. And I feel like no one would have gone for the weird. So basically, overall, I give this script a fairly strong recommendation. If you're a fan of the prisoner, you might see some stuff you like here. You might not like it. I, I'm not real, real sure. But it's it's a very good script. I think it, it, it would have been interesting to see get made. And as to why it didn't get made, you know, Christopher Nolan was in talks to direct this and it was going to be his uh because he had just done the prestige and it was going to be his next movie after the dark knight which was already locked in the making and he eventually left and i've not seen any real information as to why he left like i believe he went to work on inception and i believe he left because he chose to do inception instead but uh hold on just one second okay but uh, yeah, but uh, maybe he chose to do Inception instead. Or, it's it's I'm really not clear on the t- time frame. But he said he wasn't. He left the project in 2009 while he would have been working on Inception. So maybe he decided he was definitely going to go do Batman Three at that point. He didn't have time for the Prisoner. But I don't know why he left. I've not seen anything on it. Basically, after that, I, I read an interview with David Webb Peoples where he said he and Janet they wrote a script, a draft that they were happy with, and then they wrote another draft with more of a uh, Nolan's input to make it tailor it more towards him. So. I don't know which draft that was. I'm assuming this was maybe the first one. I don't know why. That's just instinct. But yeah, so eventually they le- after Nolan left, they said there wasn't like a big creative direction. So they left and the other writers got brought in. And eventually the project got killed. I read um, one of the uh, the British producers and rights holders said that they had issues working with the American distributor at that point, And so they just pulled the plug. So yeah, that's a shame. And so that's what happened to it. And it hasn't really come up again it came up again, it, it kind of went dormant for quite a few years, and it came up again in 2016, where after The Martian, Ridley Scott said he was considering doing a Prisoner movie, you know, after Covenant, and nothing has come of that since in the nearly three years since he did that interview, so who knows? I think Ridley Scott would be an interesting take on The Prisoner, but I think with Ridley Scott, he has such a spotty track record, especially as of late, that it could either be really good or really shit, you just don't know. I think a Ridley Scott prisoner could be interesting, but, you know, that's probably... Who knows that's even going to happen now? Like, he hasn't made a movie in nearly two years. So, I mean, two years this coming December will have been when all the money in the world came out. So his career seems to kind of stalled a bit. But it would be interesting to see a Ridley Scott prisoner. It would be equally interesting to see a Christopher Nolan prisoner. But yeah, that's uh, that's all I really have for tonight. Um, this was a script I very much enjoyed. I uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. Once again, if you if you feel so inclined, check out Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, and Blogger. They're linked down below. You know, send any comments and questions. And until next time, guys, which is going to be the anniversary episode and is going to be a very big, significant script, especially for this show. Bye.